Hi, I'm Chelsea, the Christian Nutritionist. Welcome to the Christian Health Club podcast. We are here to fire you up in spirit, mind, and body so that you can get out into the world and be everything God created you to be. Welcome to the club. Here we go. my friend. Welcome back to the club. How are you today? I wanted to do a follow-up on the wheat podcast that we did with Sue Becker because I think many of you, like me, were kind of blown away by Sue's information. I got a lot of great feedback. People saying they felt that same kind of cognitive dissonance that I was feeling. People excited to have a way they feel good about bringing wheat and bread back into their diet. A lot of you have already bought grain mills so cool and it's just confirmation that i was supposed to open this conversation because frankly i was kind of nervous about it and how it would be received i told one of the people in my group i felt like i came out of the wheat closet and she said you got wheat woke and that just made me laugh i have a feeling um this is going to pick up momentum in the health space maybe not right away i think there will definitely be some resistance from the holistic head honchos who are dyed in the wool gluten-free people but I think there will be an organic movement in this direction. I want to make clear that I am still eating gluten-free, aside from what I am baking at home with the freshly milled flour, because I don't want to eat this, what I call naked gluten, um, that is just the protein and the starch, you know, without having the beneficial nutrition that is meant to come with it. I think that's double trouble. Even though most gluten-free products are not healthy and are still starchy and can dysregulate your blood sugar, at least it doesn't have that added overexposed protein burden with it. I hope that makes sense. And it's a lot of the reason I wanted to do this follow-up to give you more of my thought process behind this and how I'm doing it and also answer some of the questions that you sent in. It might confuse some of you who I've told over the years that you can't be a little bit gluten-free, just like you can't be a little bit pregnant. <laughs> you either are or you aren't. And that still stands true in the case of an elimination diet or a gut healing protocol that involves being gluten-free. You have to be totally gluten-free to, you know, give that um, its best shot, you know, keep it totally out of your system. I think there are still good reasons to take gluten out of the diet, just like you might have to remove dairy or eggs for a while. But I think the goal at the end of the therapeutic protocol would be to be able to add those things back in, in their highest quality form. As Sue mentioned last week, and as I've mentioned in previous podcasts, a true food allergy is an allergy to the protein, okay? So whether it's the protein in the wheat, dairy, eggs, soy, corn, peanut, those are the most common food allergies. The allergy is to the protein. But I think we need to consider the way these foods have changed over the last 100 to 150 years, whether it's in the processing of the wheat, as Sue and I discussed, or the pasturation of dairy, um, the genetic modification of corn and soy you know most chickens and cows for that matter are fed genetically modified corn and soy which is not healthy for them and which is, compromises the quality of what they're producing in eggs and meat you know there are some people who tolerate eggs from pastured chickens but not eggs from chickens fed soy and corn um, and like with milk my husband can drink raw milk without a problem 
but if we get it from the store and he drinks it, it absolutely tears him up. Um, it just, in, in the same case of the wheat, it's just removed so many of those, um, good vitamins, minerals, enzymes, which help you process the, um, the milk. And so it's just that it's that same quality, you know, um, a quality question of quality. And so when it comes to the wheat in its most natural form, perhaps people could eat it when it's not being hyper-processed. And the other thing we have to consider, like Sue and I talked about, is the digestive function of most Americans, which is not great. Like she said, one of the most recommended and prescribed medications is an acid blocker, which prevents you from making the stomach acid you need to break down protein. When protein cannot be broken down, not only does it feel like bricks in your belly and all of this can create this acid reflux situation and leads to leaky gut. And when the food's not broken down, those big food molecules passing into your bloodstream can alarm the immune system and then you start having immune responses. So it, it becomes a, a big mess and it's quite common. But what if you ate the food in its highest quality form, prepared in a way that is good for you and you had good digestive function. That's the ultimate trifecta, the holy trinity, if you will, when it comes to to eating food. Now, I had a question about how I'm working this bread, the wheat, um, how I'm working it into my diet um, and how it's kind of fitting into my macronutrients because it's obviously very high in carbohydrates. But as you well know, I eat carbs. I eat bread, crackers, cookies, muffins, pizza. That's nothing new. Being able to eat carbs that I like is like the whole crux of how Feast of Fast got started. And it's not like I wasn't eating carbs and now I am. If you've taken Feast of Fast with me, you know this is all about how what I call be the boss of your carbs. You know, how can we still fit in some of these delicious foods and stay at a healthy weight, keep our blood sugar regulated, um, all that good stuff. So I'm fitting this wheat bread in just as I would gluten-free bread, you know, and, but this is where some of that cognitive dissonance came in for me. There's really not an easy to access store-bought gluten-free bread that's good for you. Um, the most redeeming thing I can say about them is that they're gluten-free. You know, there's no nutrition in them, just like there's no nutrition in regular store-bought bread. But at least with gluten-free bread, the burden of that naked gluten isn't there. But I've never felt good about recommending the gluten-free bread in the store to people. You know, we're buying it for my family, which, by the way, full disclosure, I still am buying some of that gluten-free bread. We've slowly decreased um, the store-bought as we increase the homemade, but we have not 100% switched over. I just want you to know that so, you know, you can be setting reasonable expectations for yourself. Um I've also made homemade gluten-free bread in the bread maker over these last few years in an effort to have better quality, which it is because I don't use bad oils and I use honey instead of processed sugar, but the flour isn't healthy. It's just gluten-free. You know, it doesn't offer any nutrition, just energy, just what some of y'all like to call calories, but you definitely have to work all of this into your diet mindfully. Otherwise, it can really wreck your blood sugar regulation. And, you know, all of this is what we do in Feast of Fast. But after hearing Sue speak, I was like, wouldn't it be better to eat bread that actually has redeeming qualities? <laughs> like actually has some nutrition in it, like the B vitamins and vitamin E. You know, in fact, if I could tolerate this milled wheat, wouldn't it be better to eat this 
than gluten-free bread, which doesn't offer anything in the way of nutrition and quite frankly detracts from nutrition. In Feast to Fast, we call this an upgrade. We're always looking for the most upgraded versions of our hekyas, of these foods that are, um, you know, like the cookies and the crackers and the breads and all of these things. And I would argue that fresh baked bread with freshly milled organic wheat is a definite upgrade over store-bought or even most homemade gluten-free breads. Now, if you have a pristine diet and you don't ever eat any flour products, I'm then I'm not sure we can be friends. No, I'm just kidding. Um, maybe this doesn't apply to you, okay? I'm not saying um, you have to bring in bread if you do not already. But I do not have a pristine diet, okay? I love to eat a piece of delicious buttery toast and I love to make cookies and muffins and have them with my kids and I love having cheese and crackers um so yeah I'm gonna upgrade where I can you know believe me I'll still be eating my favorite gluten-free Mary's Gone crackers you know it's not like I'm going back to wheat thins or triscuits or anything like that which that is funny because it makes me think one of my favorite snacks I used to have when I thought I was being healthy before going gluten-free I would divide a piece of American cheese into four squares, you know, like, like fold it in half and then fold it in half again. <laughs> I would get four squares of American cheese and I'd have four Triscuits. And so that would be my snack, like four pieces of cheese and four Triscuit crackers. And God love my soul. I, I chose Triscuits because they only have three ingredients, wheat, oil, and salt, which is definitely better than a cracker with 25 horrible ingredients. But, you know, in the Triscuit, the wheat's not healthy. The oil is not healthy. Pretty sure they're using the absolute lowest quality form of salt. They're not using Redmond's Real Salt. Um, and so it's not like, well, the Mary's Gone crackers are perfect, but um, I would say they are an upgrade over Triscuits for sure. Anyway, so that answers that on how I fit it into my diet carbohydrate wise, same as I always have, you know, same way we do it in Feast to Fast, just with the wheat flour instead of the gluten-free flour. Speaking of macronutrients, let's talk about protein since that came up in the podcast. Oh man, when Sue was like, you know, said she didn't need as much protein. Now she's getting older and she's a grandma. I was like, I wanted to say, yes. Sue, yes, you do, sister friend. Don't skip on the protein as you age. You've got to keep that that musculature so your bones are healthy and all the things. Um, maybe we'll have that discussion somewhere down the road if she and I keep connecting, which I hope we do. Um, and I do, I do truly believe we need a healthy presence of protein in our diet. Now, as I mentioned, do I believe biblical women ate 90 grams or 120 grams of animal protein every day? Absolutely not. I'm so glad this came up because it's something I have been wanting to talk about in a podcast. And um, I have talked about it some in my Christian Health Club group and in my 10 Times Stronger groups, um, which in that program, we, you know, we have some pretty high protein goals. Um, But you might be wondering, you know, why would I recommend such high amounts of protein when I don't think that's what they did in the Bible or the biblical times? And it's kind of the same reason I'm good with, you know, bioidentical hormone replacement therapy when I know biblical ladies didn't have or use such a thing. We have so many different health challenges now that they didn't used to have. Don't get me wrong. They had their challenges and their obstacles. But, you know, I think a lot of them were more of an acute nature, like somebody getting a cut and having an infection or, you know, dying in childbirth or those sorts of things. People weren't dying of heart attacks and diabetes and cancer, you know, like they do today. 
And what we have now is about a billion more toxins that disrupt hormones, gut terrain, brain function. We have an unbelievable amount of new quote unquote foods, I will use that term loosely, that didn't used to exist, um, you know, 100, 150 years ago, including seed oils and these processed carbohydrate foods. And the reason Feast of Fast works so well is because carbs are what trip us up the most. Because there are so many more in the food supply now than there ever has been in the history of the world. And, you know, carbohydrates turn to sugar in the body. And when we eat too many, they make us get stuck in sugar burning mode and store fat. You know, not to mention that these processed carbs are riddled with horrible ingredients like bad oils, dyes, preservatives. And, you know, our livers are like, what are what are you doing to me right now? It's just we're overburdening our liver and it's just overall really hard on our body. But they didn't have factory processed food and man-made chemicals in biblical times. They also didn't sit inside all day hunched over computers under artificial lights. You know, they were outside under the sun moving around eating fresh food, including fresh bread. You know, making bread was a major responsibility for biblical women. They had to grind the grain by hand, which I can't even imagine and make the loaves and keep the fire all at the right temp and you know all the, all that thing it was serious business not like me milling my grain in 30 seconds and dumping it all in the in the bread maker and like wah the bread is out three hours later we're just so stinking spoiled today we're like i don't have time to make bread but we do friends we really do so because we have an in insane amount of carbohydrates in the food supply now and much of them made with hyperpalatable addictive ingredients that keep us going back for more. In other words, we have a very hard time controlling our um, carbohydrate intake. But when you focus on getting 20 to 30% of the of protein in your diet, and I'm talking about animal-based protein from meat, eggs, or fish, you get the complete protein, meaning all the essential amino acids and proper synergistic ratio um, so that you can easily engage in muscle protein synthesis. And so you feel satisfied and full um, with less food intake, frankly. Um, eating that much protein helps prevent overeating. Um, it's the macronutrient that most profoundly changes your body composition in a positive way. You know, it will lean you out and you just don't feel so hungry all the time. So it really shuts those cravings down. Yes, you can get all of the amino acids you need from plant-based foods like beans and rice, like she was talking about, but you do have to work at it uh, a little harder. And for people that, you know, I'm thinking in these poorer countries where they don't have just this influx of all this food that we have, um, that's in a lot of cases, that's all they got, you know? And so they, there's not really that much of a risk of overeating. They like we have, you know, like if we're trying to get our, beans and rice, our amino acids from our beans and rice, and we're eating it with our chips and queso, you know, and our, um, you know, and then earlier in the day, we had like our sandwich and chips, you know, you know what I'm saying? Like, we just have so many more carbohydrates um, that it just adds up quickly, so much more quickly than most people realize, which is why Feast of Fast is a real eye opener for people. But grains are carbohydrates, you know, and you have to eat quite a helping of each of them to get the right amount of essential amino acids you need to keep your muscle. In the modern times that we live in, you know, where people are already consuming way too many carbs and are perpetual sugar burners, this is a problem. 
you know, also you have to have good gut bacteria to be able to process all of these carbohydrates. And that's another problem we have in modern times, as Sue and I discussed. You know, biblical people would have had a strong presence and diversity of gut bacteria because they didn't have all of the toxins and processed foods and antibiotics that we have. And, you know, they were outside, they were in nature, they were in contact with dirt, they didn't shower, you know, every single day, they were, you know, kind of dirty, they just had a, a, a much better, um, a much better relationship with microbes, they got them more naturally. Um, they weren't overly sanitized like we are today, like, ooh, I'll, you know, I have to wash my hands five million times a day and use hand sanitizer and all that, and we'd kill all of these these helpful bugs. So, um, so anyway, you know, those are major differences. And when it comes to, um, you know, thinking about getting our pro our essential amino acids from grains and, um, these carbohydrate foods, I recently heard Dr. Gabrielle Lyon, who I love, you know, as a protein expert, talk about, um, the studies being done on certain gut, gut bacteria that might help plant proteins be utilized more like complete proteins um, that you would get from animals. Like they might do a better, con somebody could do a better conversion with plant proteins. And that might be why some people do okay on a plant-based protein diet. Um, honestly, from my years of experience and from everything I'm read and seen, it's that's very few people. A lot of people on a completely plant-based diet do okay for a while, and then at least at least by five years, if not sooner, their health often really starts tanking. Um, but anyway, um, that there is that possibility, and so it might be that those people have a a better some better species strains of gut bacteria that help them utilize those plant proteins in a more efficient way. But, you know, because the majority of us in this country have had so much exposure to antibiotics and toxins that disrupt our gut bacterial balance, it is much less likely that we have this ability to use plant proteins efficiently. We just use animal proteins so much more efficiently because they are an efficiently delivered protein. And they are also, um, again, you don't have to eat near as much um, of an animal protein to get the protein out of it, whereas you have to eat a lot of a plant food to get the the protein. And in a, a society where people are overeating as it is, that is not helpful. One way I kind of think about it is this, you know, are we more like an animal or are we more like a plant? And I hate to tell you, but we are animals <laughs> with a more developed brain. Um, well, some of us are anyway. Um, I've kind of had this thought that you know, we eat animal foods to feed our human cells and plant foods to feed our microbial cells because we are, you know, um, made up of many, at least half or more of microbial cells. And so um, I think that's why a, um, a protein from animal foods, you know, animal foods and plant food diet is, is optimal. You know, how having some, you know, healthy um, proteins, meats, eggs, fish, healthy fats from both the animal kingdom and the plant kingdom. And then, you know, some carbohydrates, plant foods um, from the plant kingdom. But amino acids from protein are what the body uses to make muscle, skin, you know, brain cells, hormones, bone, all the things, you know, that make us very human. And plant foods, while we get some vitamins, minerals, and antioxidants, antioxidants, a lot of its purpose is to feed gut bacteria, you know, the, the fiber. 
But we have such compromised gut bacteria in this day and age. And that's a lot of the reason you see so many people feel better on a meat-based diet and why um, carnivore has become a very popular therapeutic diet. I feel better when I eat more animal protein than I do a big plate of vegetables. That is for sure. And like I told Sue, I don't think biblical people ate huge plates of veggies. You know, they may not have eaten as much animal protein as the protein experts suggest, but I don't think they ate as many vegetables and fruits as the plant people suggest, simply because they didn't have access to the variety or the quantity that we do today. They were not eating big plates of Brussels sprouts, broccoli, and romaine lettuce. You know, they would have eaten fruit, um, some, some, maybe some root vegetables, nuts, and seeds seasonally. They would have eaten meat sometimes, but probably more of their animal protein came from dairy products like milk and yogurt um, than meat. They definitely had meat. We see that throughout the Bible. Um, we also see the dairy. And they did have grains, you know, like lentils and then, you know, your wheat bread. I found an interesting um, reference in Job, in Job 30, that says, the verse is kind of confusing sounding, but I'm just going to read it to you. It's Job 30, um, 3 through 4. From want... And famine, they were solitary, fleeing into the wilderness, in former time desolate and waste, who cut up mallow by the bushes and juniper roots for their food. Okay, it's worded kind of strange. So in the biblical commentary, it said mallow, the mallow they reference is likely a salt wart, um, which is, I guess, kind of like a, it'd be like a, a leaf um, maybe used in like a salad and broom is probably juniper, which, um, it says broom roots or root crop. And in that verse, it makes it sound like those, you know, that's desperate times. Like we're plucking some of these leaves off a bush. Another translation said they were plucking leaves off the bush. Um, and, and in fact, the commentary said, you know, Job makes it sound like, you know, these, these foods were the food of the poor classes. So the point I'm trying to make here is that they were not making big ginormous salads. Okay. <laughs> and honestly, I think fresh fruits and veggies were probably the rarer things they ate. And mostly their carbs would have come from the grains eaten alongside the animal foods, you know, fish, bread, and wine, the meal of Jesus. Um, I did go back to that verse that Sue mentioned in Isaiah 7:15, which says, um, in several translation, it reads like this: "Butter and honey shall he eat, that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good." But like she said, um, the commentary also suggests that it's not butter but curds, you know, and and I'll translate it basically into a yogurt, okay? But the point of that verse is making it is making it sound like, or explaining that those would have been common foods for children. So the commentary says, the common food of children in that country where these articles were in great abundance and of the best sort. So speaking of the curds and the honey. And so the principal meaning of this verse seems to be that this child called Emmanuel shall be brought up in the usual manner. Okay. All that just coming down to the point that Jesus would eat like all the other kids, okay, because he's um, divine and human. And so he's going to eat these few foods like all of the other, um, all the other kids on the block, okay, in the hood. So one other thing about plant foods of today compared to plant foods um, historically um, was that now most everything is sprayed with pesticides, and so if you pair that with the poor soil conditions of today, 
not only are many of our plant foods reduced in nutrients, but also come with a big helping of poison. Mm -mm. So there's a lot to consider here, you know, and these are all the things that have been on my brain (laughs) that I feel like I needed to uh, unleash on you and share with you for more context and to flesh out this conversation. One thing I meant to ask Sue and didn't get to was about using yeast versus like fermentation process. And so I did email her and ask her her thoughts. And this is what she said. She said, we predominantly use instant yeast for our yeast leaven breads. The brand is Fermapan. It's a French strain um, instant yeast. She said, we sell it in one pound vacuumed seal packages and it's very reasonably priced. She said, I do do some sourdough, which I love but I am not totally convinced it's the only way to enjoy the nutritional benefits of bread. Sure, the longer, slower fermentation will increase perhaps some of the nutritional benefits, just much like fermentation of milk to yogurt increases the B vitamin content, but any fermentation will make nutrients more available, whether that is with a traditional sourdough or yeast. Sourdough leavening has both yeast and lactobacillus organism. Some people claim that they find they can better digest sourdough bread and they prefer only that. I have never had a problem with either. And since as a culture, we Americans are more used to a softer, fluffier bread, I typically use straight yeast dough for my bread. Okay. And that's kind of where I am too at this point. As I've mentioned before, I kill sourdough starters like I kill plants. I've got an entire pot graveyard in my backyard from all the plants I've bought that I haven't kept alive. Neither one of those is my gift. And so I'm glad to hear Sue say that she just mostly uses the um, instant yeast. I have been using organic um, yeast packets that I find at the store. Okay, Um, so now I want to answer some of the questions that y'all sent in. Great questions. We're so inquisitive, so excited. Um, So let's see here. This one is from Angie. She said, how often can you or are you supposed to eat the bread? Is it daily? Is it every meal? Um, Well, I mean, there's no rule. I don't, I don't think. I don't eat it every day and certainly not at every meal. I probably eat it two to three times a week. As I mentioned earlier, I keep it, you know, moderated within my feast to fast carb parameters um, and I'm balancing it out with the other carbs I might be eating in the day. So I'm not overdoing the carb load. Um, And that's just the way I've eaten for years and years. This, like I said, has been a lateral step for me, you know, just a healthier version of the bread or muffins or pancakes or whatever I might've been cooking for the family and eating. I, I think you could eat it every day if you wanted to. I just, I think we have to be mindful of our carb load. If you remember, Sue said, somebody asked her that question and she said, well, Jesus calls himself the bread of life. How much do you need Jesus? (laughs) So. I mean, that would indicate you need to eat it like for every single meal. But um, anyway, I think that's just kind of up to you. But I that's how I do it. Okay, Angie also asks, can you make the bread and freeze it? Or will that change the good stuff? Just thinking about if I can make it for my son in college and freeze it until I can get it to him. Yes, you can. Freezing is a great option. Here's the key. The key is to not let the the flour sit too long before you bake with it because it starts oxidizing. That is the problem. You want to use the flour soon after you mill it, but you can bake it and freeze it and it will be fine. I haven't frozen any yet. I uh, I typically bake it in my bread machine. I take it out and let it cool. Well, actually, honestly, um, I usually cut off a slice while it's still hot and slather it in butter and eat it or like right out of the bread machine. It's just oh, so good. And it's really 
filling and I feel really satisfied. I think, you know, Sue talked about um, how it helps cravings. Like I feel really satisfied once I eat it. We, we joke um, that it's like steak bread. It's just so it's thick and it's hearty and it's delicious. My husband, he calls it steak bread. Um, but once it's cool, I wrap it up in a tea towel and I just leave it on the counter. I actually don't even put it in the fridge. I'm not sure if that's right, but I feel like somewhere along the way I heard to do that just to, um, leave it on the counter, but I don't know. can't say for sure. That's just what I do. It makes me feel very farmhouse wife to just wrap it in a tea towel, <laughs> leave it on the counter. Um, but it's gone in like two days, three days tops. So it's not like I would not leave it on the counter for a week. Absolutely not. Um, I would put it in the fridge, but I know we're going to knock it out in a couple days. So I just leave it on the counter. Um, Angie also asks, is there one grain that is better than others? I noticed that Sue mentioned several grains in the wheat family. Is there an advantage to having one over the others? I think it depends what you're using it for. Um, on her website, Sue says to make a yeast bread, you will need hard red or hard white wheat. For pastries, pancakes, biscuits, or any baking powder, baking soda type recipe, you can use a soft white wheat, um, which the hard wheat can be used for these recipes, but the soft wheat will be lighter. If you can, get a bucket of hard red and a bucket of hard white. Experiment, see what your family likes best, or get a bucket of one type and ask for a few pounds of the other. Um, and so if you haven't looked at the website, um, they sell these in like prepper style <laughs> ginormous buckets. Like I don't, I, I wish I knew the pounds off hand. Um, I did buy a huge bucket of the hard white. Um, and then I bought just a few pounds, like individual, um, I think it was maybe a five pound bags of the einkorn and the spelt. Um, anyway, um, let me go back to what she was saying. Um, the red has the nutty flavor that we all associate with whole wheat. The white wheat is milder than the red and is more suitable for breads with toppings or fillings or where you don't want to taste as much of the bread. Like if you were doing, um, maybe pizza or coffee cake that have toppings, um, a Reuben sandwich, stuff like that. French bread and cakes taste better with white wheat. Um, like I said, I have the hard white the spelt and the einkorn. I haven't used the hard red. Um, I have mixed them up. So I've made bread with a spelt and einkorn combo, like a cup of spelt, a cup of einkorn. Um, and when that bread is a little darker, slightly denser, kind of makes me think of more of a, a whole wheat, like a traditional whole wheat than the hard white, um, which is lighter uh, in color and just kind of in in composition. I've also mixed the hard white with one of the others. You know, I've just kind of played around with it with no rhyme or reason. That's for the bread. When I've made pancakes or muffins, I've used it like the straight up hard white. Okay. Listen, I'm just learning about all this like you are. Um, but there's just, there's no wheat police that are going to show up if we do it wrong. Okay. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> we can just play around with it. Um, and as I said, I'm using my Hamilton bread machine and there's no specific reason for that one. It's just that that's the one my mom gave me for Christmas a few years ago because it has a gluten-free setting. And that's what I have been using to make the gluten-free bread these past few years. But, um, it has a whole grain setting on it, which is number setting number 11. Um, and that's what I use when I make the wheat bread. Um, somebody actually did ask me that Karen wanted to know what setting. So I use the whole grain setting for that. Also, Karen wanted to know the recipe I use. And so I will tell you here, 
but also I will put it in the show notes and also email it to those of you who are on my email list so you don't have to go hunting and pecking for it. That is the benefit of being on my Sunday send out list. You know, if you're not already on it, sign up to get these kinds of updates. Um, and I'll also put that link in the in the show notes. But the recipe that I use in my bread machine, and I do it in this order, in this recipe, um, it comes, well, it's just, I'll, let me tell you about it in just a minute. Let me just say what the recipe is. Okay, ready? It's one and a half cups of hot water, one third cup extra virgin olive oil, one third cup of honey, one egg, two egg yolks, two teaspoons of salt, four to four and a half cups of flour, and one packet of organic yeast. To make that four to four and a half cups, you're using two cups of um, the grain. Okay, and listen, this is very importante. Your grain machine has to be on before you pour the grain in there. Don't you don't pour it in and then turn it on. It has to be on first. Okay, so I'm always like, don't do it backwards. That's the one thing you have to remember. But this recipe that um. The, the recipe I was given to use by my daughter's friend's mom, you know, that's the one I was talking to in the front yard when we were picking up the girls from the birthday party, which I had my like final confirmation. This is what I need to do. Um, I think she got it from Sue's cookbook and it called for two tablespoons of lecithin. So if you are looking at a homemade bread recipe and it has lecithin, I use two egg yolks instead of that and it works just fine. Okay. Um, Lecithin is an emulsifier and helps everything just kind of blend better. And I didn't have any of that when I got all of my stuff. And I just was like, I want to make the bread right now. <laughs> and so I had remembered you could use egg yolks in that way. And so I was like, I'm just going to try this. And it worked out fine. Um, plus, I like having the nutrition of the egg yolks in there. And so that's what, I, that's what I've been doing. So you can do that. Okay. Um, so the recipe that I'm doing is um, actually, it's kind of a combination of the one I got from my my friend and which I think she got from Sue's information and then it was the one I was already using to make gluten-free bread and so it's just kind of a I just kind of combine those in a way and then it worked out so that's the recipe I use and like I said I it will be in the show notes and email um all the places okay Angie um let's see oh okay also because Angie had asked about the different um, the different grains and stuff. I'm sure there's some slight variation of nutrition among the flowers. You know, I think that the, these are the ones Sue uses the most, but she did also mention the Ezekiel blend that she likes um, as well. And that is a mix of the different grains. And I haven't tried that. And I have to imagine it is uh, better than the Ezekiel bread you can get in the store. Not to rail on them. Like if I, if somebody was eating gluten, um, you know, before like all these years, that's the bread I recommended, you know, because it's the, a sprouted grain. And so that would be your best version bought. But I mean, frankly, to me, and not to everybody, but to me, it tastes like cardboard. And so this is a far, far cry from that. Um, okay, Julie has the following questions. Okay, she says, to be clear, the milled bread does have natural gluten in it. It's a natural part of the process. However, it makes it okay because of all the natural vitamins, etc., in that, that they're being preserved and not stripped away like the commercial breads out there. That is correct, Julie. It is naturally packaged with everything else, which doesn't leave that gluten so exposed, right, that you might say. So when it's commercially processed, it is stripping away everything but the starch. So we're talking, you know... 
um, straight turn into sugar in your body and the gluten, the protein. And so it's just, I just think it's like that naked overexposed protein. Okay. She also asked, how does the bread that is gluten-free formulate into bread if it's a natural process that takes place? Does this mean gluten-free breads, pie crust, bagels, etc., have a substitute that's not healthy or more unnatural? Gluten-free flour can be made from lots of different kinds of flours, you know, blends of rice flour, corn flour, cassava flour, you know, even almond flour and coconut flour are gluten-free, but they don't have those gluten-forming proteins that Sue talked about. That's why gluten-free breads are light and fluffy, you know, um, glute, I'm sorry, gluten-free breads are not light and fluffy like bread with gluten proteins. They're, they're, if you've had gluten-free bread, they're like kind of dense, um, flat and dense is kind of the words coming to mind. And that's why people don't like them. They want their like spongy, fluffy bread. And it's just really hard to get that from gluten-free bread because they don't have, that's what the gluten does. Um, so they're not necessarily adding anything in place of that. They just don't naturally have the gluten forming proteins. I hope that makes sense. Okay, she also asks, do you know if there are options to purchase already milled packaged flour to make our own breads, muffins, versus having to purchase a mill machine to make it? Also, are there already milled breads and other bread products on the market, such as Whole Foods, etc., or is the only way to mill the wheat and make the foods ourselves? Um, I don't know of any already milled packaged flour. There might be some out there, but the concern is that, again, the flour starts to oxidize quickly. So it's not shelf stable. And that is really like the whole point of everything is that, you know, these nutrients um, start oxidizing specifically that the fatty acids, the vitamin E, and so it will go rancid. Um, and rancidity, by the way, is why we don't like seed oils. They're rancid by the time you get them home um, as they're shelf stable. So putting rancid things in our body are oxidizing. It's just very inflammatory. So that's the concern. Now, maybe if somebody fresh milled it and then froze it, I read somewhere that you could freeze your milled grain for up to six months, but I think the ideal use is to mill it and then like use it right away or use it within the day. And then the same answer would apply to buying milled breads. They would have to be in the freezer. If you're wanting like a Whole Foods or something, they would have to be in the freezer to preserve the nutrients. I would do an internet search for local millers in your area and see if you can find something there. I mean, I, I know somewhere along the way I have seen um, locally milled bread, people advertising locally milled bread. And so you just want to make sure it's very fresh or frozen. Um, and that might be something that, you know, you ask, um, how long has this been sitting out? Okay. Elaine asks the question, do you think that people that have IgA antibodies to gliadin that shows up on their GI map, um, which by the way, a GI map is a stool test. Okay. If they have the IgA antibodies to gliadin, um, are, a, are they a candidate for a freshly milled whole wheat? Or would that be indicative of celiac disease? Having IJ, IgA antibodies on a GI map is not a marker of celiac disease. It can indicate a response to gluten or to one of the many proteins in the wheat. But like Sue and I talked about, there could be a lot of reasons someone would have a response to wheat um, or any other protein. You know, someone might need to cut out gluten while they do some gut work. And I'd still be on board with that. But I think Sue would say start with the freshly milled bread. Um, I think I'd just give the choice to the client, you know, which feels more doable, going totally gluten free or making your own bread and going that route, you know, and then you just might have to play with it. Um, of course, there's expense incurred when you start making your own bread. 
um, which is probably why Sue has been so gracious over the years in making it and giving it to people to try so they can feel it for themselves before they um, buy the grain or, or, yeah, buy the mill. Maybe if you know somebody that has a mill, maybe maybe get them to make some bread for you and see before you commit to it. Um, an intestinal biopsy is the gold standard way to confirm celiac disease. And there's also more extensive antibody blood work that can be done um, to give you a better idea. That's, that marker on a GI map is, you know, it's just an indication of, yes, there is some kind of response happening there. Okay. You could also be genetically tested to see if you carry one or both of the celiac, you know, quote unquote celiac genes, the HL. HLA DQ2 and the DQ8 genes, but carrying them doesn't mean that you have or ever will have celiac disease. Okay, if you do have one or both of those um, genes, those gene markers, your risk of developing celiac is 3% instead of 1%. Okay, so not much. Okay, Lori asks, did you take any special enzymes or supplements or prepare in any way before eating the bread? Nope. I just jumped right in. Um, I, I've thought about it, but what I decided to, I just really wanted to see what my body would do. I just braced myself like, Oh my gosh, what's going to happen. <laughs> but thankfully it was fine. You know, I, I didn't have any stomach pain. I wasn't bloated. I pooped the next morning. Nothing unusual popped up with my skin condition. I didn't gain weight over the months I was eating it, you know, but like I said, it's not like I was eating carbs and then I just started eating carbs. I've always eaten carbs, except for, you know, that little carniv carnivorous experiment I did a few years ago. So, you know, it wasn't like I just introduced a bunch of carbs into my system that I'd never had before. Um, I really wish I would have gotten it together, uh, gotten my act together to have the labs already done. So I could have reported those as a part of this podcast um, process series. But you know, I just, I, y'all, <laughs> I know you can relate. Like I'm just doing the best I can. The box is like still sitting on my dining room table and I just haven't done it yet. I'm just, you know, I'm trying to pull, pull my life together. Um, but I will, I will at some point, but now I'm on this parasite protocol, which is a story for another podcast. Um, my muscle tested positive for a cestoid last weekend. And I've, so now I'm on this protocol and I've got so many things stirred up in my body. I just, that's why I sound kind of hoarse. I honestly don't feel that great. But anyway, I just, um, not sure it's the best time to go get my blood tested. So anyway, I'll get to it at some point and I will report back to you. Okay. Adita asks, is it possible to mill the grains using a Vitamix? It comes with the standard big container for making smoothies, but I separately bought a small container specifically for pulverizing grains. I use this small container to break down flaxseed, chia seeds, etc. Can I use it to mill wheat grains? Um, I'm not sure how hard the grains are. Um, I honestly, Adita, I don't know. It sounds like you could. And actually this question came up in my, in my group, we were talking about this and the few of the ladies seem to think that it would. So I would definitely give it a try and see what you think. Okay. Okay. Those are all the questions that came in. Um, well, by the time I recorded the podcast, so if you sent one in later, I'm sorry, it didn't make it on here. Um, I'm just truly blown away by the receptivity to these podcasts. Um, haven't heard from a lot of practitioners on it. Um, just a few that said, wow, this was eye opening. But like I said, I think this is going to gain traction, you know, especially with the pro metabolic movement that's happening and everybody coming back around to carbs. I never left them, <laughs> but I, I did leave wheat and it did take me a while to be open, um, 
open to bringing it back in, but that's okay. We're all on our journey here. And I just really wanted to give you this information. I wanted to offer you more perspective, more options. And again, you know, um, this this is, I mean, this was a major staple in, in the Bible. And I, like I said, we can't, we can't have a, an exact mirror or parallel of how they ate in the, in the Bible. Um, but there are some broad takeaways for sure. And so I think that this is, this is one, this is definitely one to consider. And so I thank all of you for the positive feedback, being open to it, experimenting. Please let me know how it goes. Um, if you bought a grain mill and you're, and you're making the bread, um, let me know how it's going, how you like it, if you're doing okay with it, or if it's creating, you know, issues, if you've been gluten-free and then you ate it, that would be great to know, you know, so I could have a little kind of an informal poll and, and know what's happening. Um, and as always, I'm just super grateful for your time that you're here, that we're just all on the same page, you know, um, as in, in the fact that we're just truly here to have the healthiest bodies that we can have to serve the Lord as best we can. And so with that, I will leave you and um, thank you so much for listening. I hope you have a healthy and blessed week and I will talk to you soon. Remember that my mom is an awesome nutritionist, but she's not a doctor. The information in this podcast is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent disease. Always talk to your doctor before making changes to your nutrition or exercise program. Thanks for listening. Have a healthy and blessed week.